This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Why should an Orthodox Catholic bother reading Samuel Beckett? This question is certainly pressing and personal to me as both a Beckett scholar and a Catholic. And some of you here may be asking yourselves that very question right now. Or if you aren't, maybe you should, because it absolutely has to be admitted that reading Beckett subjects us to an assault on the faith from a number of angles. Let's just make that clear at once with an example. And this is actually from a, a passage that um, Beckett never published uh, from a draft notebook towards the novel What, but it's nevertheless both hilarious and very telling. Uh, the text is from uh, Chris Ackerley's annotated What, which you can see uh, photographed in the corner. Um, and the tale told is that of uh, Matthew David McGilligan, uh, an Irish priest who has just submitted his thesis on the following topic. If a rat gnaw or nibble a consecrated host, does he gnaw or nibble the real body? If he do not, what has become of the body? If he do, what shall be done with the rat? To the first of these questions, McGilligan replied that the rat did indeed gnaw or nibble the real body. And this conclusion he supported with quotations from the works of St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventura, Peter Lombard, Alexander of Hales, the four great doctors of the West, the four great doctors of the Middle West, Sanchez, Suarez, Heno, Soto, Diana, Conchina, Dense, Odie, and others. To the second question, McGilligan contented himself with replying, simply that the body being consubstantial with the host, as much of the former was in the rat as he had gnawed or nibbled of the latter, and as much still in the latter as he had not gnawed or nibbled thereof. To the third question, McGilligan replied that the rat when caught should be pursued with all the rigor of the canon laws and pontifical decrees, adding that in this connection, a number of difficulties arose which delicacy forbade him to formulate and whose elucidation required a scholarship not possessed by him and only to be obtained in his humble opinion by a long period of tranquil study in the eternal city. Pressed by a deputation composed of four lay coadjutors and a professed of the three vows to overcome his scruples and reveal the difficulties that rose up in his mind in connection with the chastisement of the rat, McGilligan replied that he craved leave to withdraw to his cell and there consider the matter with prayer and fasting. This being readily granted, McGilligan disappeared into his cell with a stale turnover and a jug of fresh water, and there considered the matter with such dispatch that two hours later he was able to gratify the deputation with the following comment. And here we get to a point in the text which I can't handle myself. I want to thank, thank Professor uh, Ronan MacDonald uh, in the University of Melbourne for kindly sending me a sound file of this from across the world. Gentlemen, after having considered the matter from every angle, I find this opportunity to lay before you them points that was was up my mind. I, I prefer the conclusion of my poor little thesis, don't you know? Swapping to one side each and every consideration, only the one. This obedience to my hierarchical superiors and trust in you to keep me in mind, don't you know? Thereby, sapiens, really like it. Point one, once you've got the hold on the rat, how are you to know would it be the right rat you've got a hold on or wouldn't it? Point two, supposing it is the right one, would it be me duty to a dower the, the bit of host that is after swallowing up? Point three, supposing it is me duty to so do, 
What are you to do with thou rat? Are you to burn him? Then you are born in the rail body. Are you to open him up and let you out the best way you can? For to put him back in the keyborium or for to end yourself, stay on tenant. Point four. Supposing you don't catch a hold of the whole rat until after what he's been and after uh, what he's been and done his duties. Purisima Virgo Amenda Karmuan et Karnan Mayam. Then where are you? Would it be me duty? McGillian, said the three vile man. Not another word, not a word more. Join the Roman holiday under the conduct of Brother Caramel Ulius. Departure Monday, Western <coughs> Row, 8 a.m. Okay, so this contains a, a fair good bit of, of, of good old-fashioned Irish Protestant anti-Catholic prejudice, as you can hear. Uh, the provincial priest with his pronounced Hiberno-English dialect manages to appear both primitively unlettered and also fawning upon arbitrary non-scriptural scholastic authority and the authority of Rome, of Latin, and his hierarchical superiors. Furthermore, the whole topos of quid mus sumit, what does the mouse eat when eating the communion wafer, was in fact widely discussed by medieval theologians as a way of developing some of the implications of the doctrine of transubstantiation. And later on, those discussions served as fodder for Protestant polemicists who attacked that doctrine as unspiritual and unbiblical. So Beckett is here, in a sense, joining that tradition, but amplifying it through a kind of hijinks, absurdity and scatological parody. Earnest, elaborate, but spinning on empty reasoning about spiritual matters here unravels and turns into its opposite, an undignified chase after bloated rats to solemnly consume their excrements. This juxtaposition of Christian symbols and rotting, decaying flesh and filthy matter is in fact something Beckett would return to obsessively. Another example is in the novel Malone Dies, where the prostitute Moll has carved her single rotting tooth into a crucifix, the celebrated sacrifice, in order to please her lover. However, this kind of thing is not, I think, too hard to answer. It's not as if the corruption of all flesh and Christ's passage through it is news to a Catholic. As Thomas Aquinas put it in his discussion of this issue, even though a mouse or a dog were to eat the consecrated host, the substance of Christ's body would not cease to be under the species so long as those species remain, and that is so long as the substance of bread would have remained just as if it were to be cast into the mire. Nor does this turn to any indignity regarding Christ's body, since he willed to be crucified by sinners without detracting from his dignity, especially since the mouse or dog does not touch Christ's body in its proper species, but only as to its sacramental species. After reading the Beckett passage, this actually startles me and brings me up short. Christ's dignity is not diminished through becoming incarnate. The faith is thoroughly at ease with the sometimes uncomfortable reality of matter. But why start this talk with such a grotesque and uncomfortable example? Well, um, pervasive assaults on the faith like this tell us something very important. Beckett's writing is theology obsessed, faith obsessed. God-obsessed. His body of work as a whole is one long compulsive struggle with Christianity. This struggle is everywhere because Beckett, like Friedrich Nietzsche, knows very well that Christianity is not a set of half-forgotten dogmas or a collection of dusty texts or some sort of club you attend on a Sunday. Christianity still pervades every category that we use to think with. 
Um, Nietzsche's madman in Thus Spoke Zarathustra famously announced that a dead god decomposes slowly. The process rots everything else too, and there is no longer any metaphysical ground to stand on, no basis any longer for the kind of access to reality we thought we enjoyed. And this is perhaps most explicit in the novel The Unnameable, which is about a voice refusing to be defined by any available categories and therefore stalwartly refusing any identity at all, the unnameable. They also gave me the lowdown on God. They told me I depended on him in the last analysis. They had it on the reliable authority of their agents in Bali, I forget what, this being the place, according to them, where the inestimable gift of life had been rammed down my gullet. But what they were most determined for me to swallow was my fellow creatures. They gave me courses on love, on intelligence, most precious, most precious. They also taught me to count and even to reason. Not just God as being vehemently rejected here, but the gift of life, fellow creatures, love, intelligence, arithmetic, and reason itself. These all depend on God in the last analysis, and so appeal to them is no longer legitimate. Beckett stubbornly stays with this refusal, this inability to make sense of everything from God to life, love, reason, fellow creatures. And what is left is failure. And failure, in fact, becomes Beckett's inescapable theme. And we might think of this in a few ways. We have skepticism of the failure of religion, but also any other systematic body of thought, philosophy, politics, to really make sense of, of existence. There's sarcasm, parody, laughter, comedy directed at the failure of human beings to achieve their projects, their ambitions. There's a, an obsession with failing bodies and failing minds, aging, disability, degeneration, decomposition, psychic knots, disintegration. Pessimism about existence itself as a kind of failure, a place of inevitable suffering due to the hopeless unobtainability of desire. I could like to quote the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer on the original sin of having been born, that is to say, of existing at all. On Schopenhauer's analysis, desire is blind, endless willing, and individuals constantly suffer both from the lack of fulfillment of their desire and the ennui or despair that comes with the realization that any temporary fulfillment leads to a craving for, for something else. And uh, Beckett's most famous play, Waiting for Godot, revolves around just this kind of relentless, hopeless waiting for the fulfillment that never comes. And then there's the failure to know, epistemologically, the failure of methods, category of, of knowing, and ontologically, the failure of reason to access reality. And then the failure of language. Uh, in a famous letter to his friend Axel Kaun from 1937, Beckett spoke of his ideal of a literature of the unword. Uh, which where a mocking attitude to words may be put into words in order to somehow display their inefficacy. Uh, a big influence on this aspect of, of Beckett's thinking was the 19th century German philosopher of language, Fritz Mautner, who argued in his critique of language that all thinking takes place in the words of the language and thinking dissolves into itself when the nebulous nature of words has become clear to us. Beckett uh, humorously summed up this, this take on, on Mautner in telegraphic fashion to, 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 to the scholar Linda Ben-Svi. Uh, for me, it all came down to thought words, words inane, thought inane. Such was my levity. Now, Beckett insisted, as I said, on sticking relentlessly with failure. He actually describes this as a kind of ethical imperative, a fidelity to failure as he puts it in his 1949 text, Three Dialogues with Georges Dutuy, to be an artist is to fail, as no other dare fail, 
that failure is his world and the shrink from it, desertion. And he could be severe even with artists that he liked and admired about any tendency in their work to recuperate failure, as he remarked about his sculptor friend Alberto Giacometti, for example. What does recuperating failure mean? It's the idea of taking failure as some kind of new opportunity, even as pointing towards some form of possible redemption, a kind of tacit optimism within, within pessimism, if you like. And Beckett was extremely wary of this. And in one notebook from 1936, he has this to say about hope. The word here means both human and desire in general, and also, I think, eschatological hope, hope for salvation. There are moments where the veil of hope is finally ripped away and the eyes suddenly liberated see their world as it is, as it must be. Alas, it does not last long. The perception quickly passes. The eyes can only bear such a merciless light for a short while. The thin skin of hope reforms and one returns to the world of phenomena. Hope is the cataract of the spirit that cannot be pierced until it is ripe for decay. Not every cataract ripens. Many a human being spends his whole life enveloped in the mist of hope. And even if the cataract can be pierced for a moment, it almost always reforms immediately, and thus it is with hope. Well, at this point, though, and even against Beckett's overt intentions in this passage, hope begins to seem less a misty veil or cataract-like illusion and, and, and more something too resilient, too persistent, ever to be fully got rid of. Hope is inescapable. Hope always returns and reforms. And I think that Beckett is an honest enough writer to show us that dynamic as well, even as he is ostensibly trying to pierce the veil and disperse it as an illusion. Hope still persists maddeningly and tantalizingly in Beckett's actual writing. Think, for example, of the novel Watt, in which the servant figure Watt spends many futile years in the employment of Mr. Not who is, among other things, a kind of absent deity figure, only to be turned out when his time is up and the next servant, next servant in the arbitrary series arrives. What had he learned? Nothing. What did he know of Mr. Knott? Nothing. Of his anxiety to improve, of his anxiety to understand, of his anxiety to get well, what remained? Nothing. But was not that something? He saw himself then, so little, so poor, and now, littler, poorer. Was not that something? So sick, so alone, and now, sicker, aloner. Was not that something? Another passage makes explicit the mystical nature of Watt's search, whose name is, of course, a question, and who encounters only enigma, negation, and nothingness in his quest for the knotty Mr. Knot of naught, to the source, to the teacher, to the temple. To him I brought this emptied heart, these emptied hands, this mind ignoring, this body homeless, to love him my little reviled, my little rejected, to have him, my little to learn him forgot, abandoned my little to find him, of course, Beckett is parodying Christian mysticism here. This invokes the via negativa, the abandonment of all created things to love a God who is a kind of indefinable darkness or point zero. And it evokes the humility and emptiness and rejection of self needed to embark on that path. 
But despite the parody, the passage is still moving and haunting, I think. And it keeps recalling the very hope it wants to reject. Watt, in his despairing quest, becomes the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows uncomely to behold. Often he's struck against the trunks of trees, or in the tangles of underwood caught his foot, and fell to the ground flat on his back, or into a great clump of brambles, or of briars, or of nettles, or of thistles. But still, without murmur, he came on, until he lay against the fence, with his hands at arm's length, grasping the wires. Then he turned, with the intention very likely of going back the way he had come, and I saw his face and the rest of his front. His face with blood was bloody, his hands also, and thorns were in his scalp. His resemblance at that moment to the Christ believed by Bosch, then hanging in Trafalgar Square, was so striking that I remarked it. And there's that, that image um, which um, Beckett saw in London when he was living in London in the 30s. Um, I'll just note in passing that Beckett's visual imagination was, was full of images like these. He was steeped in the, 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 the Christian uh, artistic tradition as well. Uh, and he usually latches on to the broken, human, diminished Christs of that tradition while disliking, for example, the, the Christ in glory of a Fra Angelico. And by this point, I think we're coming to realize that despite... Beckett's assaults on faith, there's an awful lot of common ground with Christianity over this whole question of failure. Christianity, after all, in a sense, is founded on utter dereliction and loss. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our faith could even be said to constitute a kind of fidelity to that failure. Christianity for Beckett is not something he could ever simply definitively reject and leave behind but rather a lifelong competitor on the same contested ground. His own vision of failure arises out of his reaction to Christianity, and he keeps drawing on Christianity for images through which to articulate that vision, as we've just seen in Watt. This means that Beckett's works are engaged in a very intimate dialogue with Christianity, and my answer to the question of why Catholics should read him is that this oppositional dialogue can be productive and revealing and creative forcing us to work through Beckett's challenges to the faith, while also refocusing our attention on exactly what our own kind of fidelity to failure should entail. We do not need to emulate Beckett's stringent despair, but we would do well to explore its roots, to take its measure, to take it seriously. So next, let's ask ourselves where this ethics of fidelity to failure is coming from. What is the motivation? What is the impetus behind it? Beckett was intensely preoccupied with suffering, or as he called it, distress. <clears throat> For instance, we have reports of a sense of provocation when people asked him, uh, somehow you write about distress because you have a miserable, had a miserable child, childhood or, or something like that. Beckett's friend Anne Attic reports him as saying that all such people had to do is go to the window, read the papers, it is all there. Similarly, Attic's husband, the painter Avidor Arica, remembered an episode in a taxi, Sam looking out of the window, suddenly throwing up his hands and murmuring almost to himself, la détresse, la détresse. So, uh, so that, that sort of deeply personal impact, which kind of a, could emerge quite suddenly. In a 1961 interview with Tom Driver, he was asked whether his plays deal with the same facets of experience religion must also deal with. And his answer was yes, for they deal with distress. But the way in which religion sometimes deals with that fact of experience was, it seems, deeply offensive to him from an early age. 
James Nolson's biography describes Beckett's outrage after a sermon by his father's friend, Canon Dobbs, in 1926 on visiting the sick. The only thing the good canon could tell them was that the crucifixion was only the beginning. You must contribute to the kitty of suffering. This, as Nolson points out, forms the background to the 1938 poem, Uf um, this is a kind of garbled version of the German phrase auf dem Tisch, which is a, ga is a gambling term, meaning to put money into the pot to bet. Okay, so offer it up, plank it down. Golgotha was only the pot egg. Cancer, angina, it's all one to us. Cough up your TB, don't be stingy. We'll make sense of it. We'll put it in the pot with the rest. It all boils down to blood of lamb. Making sense, this poem insists, can only be achieved by a boiling down, a violent reduction to a kind of blood-soaked, undifferentiated stew. It is this explanatory urge that Beckett, according to Nolson, felt as an appalling affront to the suffering of the individual. A major driving force in Beckett's work, therefore, is his loathing of theodicy. There's a consistent and sometimes savage assault in Beckett on the idea that the ways of God towards man can never be rationally justified. And this ethical intuition is, as we've already seen, extended to the point where the very concepts of reason, selfhood and love themselves come under attack as carrying unacceptable vestiges of, of theodicy. After reading Arthur Schopenhauer in 1930, Beckett embraced what he called the philosopher's intellectual justification for unhappiness and shortly began using Schopenhauer's system as a template for, ex for his exegesis of Marcel Proust. Schopenhauer's ethical disgust at metaphysical optimism became for Beckett a, a stick with which to beat Christianity. For the rest, says Schopenhauer, I cannot here withhold the statement that optimism, where it is not merely the thoughtless talk of those who harbour nothing but words under their shallow foreheads, seems to me not merely an absurd, but also really a wicked way of thinking, a bitter mockery of the unspeakable sufferings of mankind. By contrast, the, the optimist party may be best represented by Alexander Pope's classic statement of the 18th century theodicy of universal harmony in Essay on Man. All nature is but art unknown to thee, all chance direction which thou canst not see, all discord harmony not understood, all partial evil, universal good. And spite of pride and erring reason's spite, one truth is clear, whatever is, is right. As we've seen, Beckett extends his resistance to the very idea of, of Christian redemption, seen as paradigmatic in a way of all forms of redemption, further than any other writers. But his was not the first ethical reaction against the 18th century theodicy of universal harmony. The most influential statement of that theodicy in English is undoubtedly William Paley's Natural Theology from 1802. <coughs> Paley finds an immense complexity of design everywhere in nature, and in his chapter on the goodness of the deity, tries to prove that such design is beneficial and providential. And what may appear evil is actually a necessary component of a larger good. Of mortal diseases, the great use is to reconcile us to death. The horror of death proves the value of life. Death itself as a mode of removal and of succession is so connected with the whole order of our animal world that almost everything in that world must be changed to be able to do without it. Charles Darwin, at one time an ardent admirer of Paley at Cambridge, sums up the 19th century disillusionment with, with this view. I cannot persuade myself that, the beneficent and omnip and that a beneficent and omnipotent God 
would have designedly created the uh, ichneumonidae with the express intention of their feeding within the living body bodies of caterpillars, or that a cat should play with mice. In what, uh, again, Beckett joins this critique with character characteristically savage irony. But our particular friends were the rats that dwelt by the stream. We would sit down in the midst of them and give them to eat out of our hands a nice fat frog or a baby thrush or seizing suddenly a plump young rat resting in our bosom after its repast, we would feed it to its mother or its father or its brother or its sister or to some less fortunate relative. It was on such occasions we agreed after an exchange of views that we came nearest to God. Nearest to God here indicates a truly perverse form of imitatio dei, a grotesque parody of an authoritarian, arbitrary, cruel god whose plaything is nature red in tooth and claw. This deity is seen as responsible for intentionally designing a nature in which obscene, senseless cruelty is an ev everyday occurrence. But at this point, most Christians would balk at these conclusions. This simply is not the god we believe in. And I think that this is a fruitful, productive reaction that reading Beckett can provoke. What has gone wrong here? What theological resources do we have to respond? One useful guide, uh, for me I th at least, I think is, is, is David Bentley Hart's brilliant little book, The Doors of the Sea, Where Was God in the Tsunami? Um, for, for Hart, the idea that particular evils in the design of this world are justified by a larger universal harmony could not be further removed from the concept of divine victory conveyed by the New Testament itself. For the New Testament, the world is in bondage to sin and death and is in need of salvation by the incarnate Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But this means that creation is not at all in its proper state. It is groaning under an alien yoke, the prince of this world, the god of this world. All is not well, all is not right. There simply is no harmony to be defended within the present state of things. Creation itself shall be delivered by the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Hart emphasizes the ultimate cosmic triumphalism of the Gospels, and central to that triumph is Christ's victory over death, the last enemy through his resurrection. Contra William Paley, death here is seen as fundamentally unnatural. It is the consequence of and punishment for sin. What Beckett's grotesque parody of a Paley-style theodicy teaches us is that the whole concept of creation's bondage to sin and the ultimate unnaturalness of suffering and death are absolutely necessary to avoid a conception of God toying sadistically with his creation. A second theological resource in confronting Beckett would be to regard, regard his distorted images of the divine as the ultimate outcome of an extreme nominalism. As Michael Allen Gillespie points out in his excellent book, The Theological Origins of Modernity, a book I recommend to, to you all, um, the medieval theologian William Ockham's concept of the absolute Omnipotence and freedom of God as the only truly necessary being leads to a frightening image of God's relationship to his contingent creatures. And this is Gillespie. God was under no obligation to keep his promises or to act consistently. For, a nomin for nominalism, God is, to use a technical term, indifferent. That is, he recognizes no natural or rational standards of good and evil that guide or constrain his will. What is good is not good in itself, 
but simply because he wills it. As this short sketch makes clear, the God that nominalism revealed was no longer the beneficent and reasonably predictable God of scholasticism. The gap between man and God had been greatly increased. God could no longer be understood or influenced by human beings. He acted simply out of freedom and was indifferent to the consequences of his acts. He laid down rules for human conduct, but he might change them at any moment. Some were saved and some were damned. Perhaps an echo there of uh, Waiting for Godot, actually, the, uh, the two thieves uh, motif. One was saved, one was damned. But there was only an accidental relation between salvation and saintliness and damnation and sin. It is not even clear that this God loves man. The world this God created was thus a radical chaos of utterly diverse things in which humans could find no point of certainty or security. How could anyone love or venerate such an unsettling God? How indeed? And without the sanity of the Philosophia Perennis, without the beneficent and reasonably predictable God of scholasticism and Thomism in particular, where we end up is maybe uh, finally Lucky's schizophrenic disintegrating voice in Waiting for Godot. Given the existence as uttered forth in the public works of Puncher and Watman of a personal god, qua, 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 with white beard, qua, 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 outside time, without extension, who from the heights of divine apathia, divine athambia, divine aphasia, loves us dearly with some exceptions, for reasons unknown but time will tell, and suffers like the divine Miranda with those who for reasons unknown but time will tell, are plunged in torment, plunged in fire, whose fire Flames, if that continues, and who can doubt it, will fire the firmament, that is to say, blast hell to heaven. So blue still and calm, so calm with a calm which even though intermittent is better than nothing, but not so fast and considering what is more that as a result of the labors left unfinished, crowned by the Akakakakik Academy of Anthropopometry in Essie and Posse of Testu and Cunard, it is established beyond all doubt, all other doubt than that which clings to the labors of men that as a result of the labors unfinished of Testu and Cunard, it is established as here and after, but not so fast for reasons unknown, that as a result of the public works of Puncher and Watman, it is established beyond all doubt that in view of the labors of Fartov and Belcher, left unfinished for reasons unknown of Testu and Cunard, left unfinished, it is established what many deny, that man in posse of Testu and Cunard, that man in Essi, that man in short, that man in brief, in spite of the strides of alimentation and defecation, wastes and pines, wastes and pines. So this would-be learned theological discourse rapidly dissolves into arbitrary reasons unknown, even as it tries hopelessly to propound theses about an indifferent, imperturbable, speechless and utterly unknowable God. In magnifying this uncanny image of the nominalist God, Beckett throws back the question to Christians again and again, is this really what you believe in? If our answer is no, then what is the alternative? Working that out is the provocation and the challenge Beckett's work offers us as Christians. Thank you.